Hello, everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven-Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Bacar & Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and your favorite podcasting app to make sure you're getting updated with future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. It's where I make my home in the ABA. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org litigation. Well, as someone who got a political science degree before going to law school, talking about election law is a dream come true for me because, as blogger and professor Rick Hassan has noted, it deals with the law of politics and the politics of the law. And we've seen the growth of election law litigation in recent years, of course, starting with George W. Bush's victory in the 2000 presidential campaign, continuing with litigation over changes to election rules due to the global pandemic, and former President Trump's lawsuits attempting to overturn Joe Biden's election as president. And with the midterm elections coming right around the corner, we wanted to bring you an interview with someone who has been on the front lines litigating these issues. So I'm pleased to welcome Allegra Lawrence Hardy to the show. She's a founding partner and litigator at the Atlanta firm Lawrence & Bundy, where she works closely with clients on high-stakes, high-profile, complex litigation matters, including labor and employment issues. During the over two decades of her practice, Allegra has also led and been part of legal teams representing municipalities, nonprofit organizations, political candidates, and political parties in election, voting rights, and political law matters, including representing Al Gore before the 11th Circuit and Bush v. Gore and serving on the 2020 Biden for President recount team. Allegra, welcome to the show. So glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Let's get into your background a little bit. Would love to hear about how you got into election law. Absolutely. The first election law case which I worked is still the biggest election law case on which I worked and probably the biggest one most of us remember in modern times. And that was Bush v. Gore back in 2000. I had the opportunity to be part of the team uh, representing Vice President Gore in the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. And I was very young then, a baby lawyer, if you will, and the partner with whom I worked was tapped to argue all of the cases in the Court of Appeals. And so because I worked closely with her, I got to become a member of that team. And that was my my first introduction 22 years ago and have been working on those matters since. Well, tell us a little about that experience and kind of how you felt as a young lawyer working on such an important and obviously historical Maybe we didn't know back then, but historical case. It was a pretty extraordinary experience to have as a young lawyer, not only because the issues were of such great importance, and it was very clear to me, even that early in my career, how important the issues were, but also because I was working you know, on a team with the most extraordinary lawyers. You know, we would get on these nationwide conference calls with just the most brilliant legal scholars and uh, creative minds. And it was just a really incredible experience, not just from a legal analysis standpoint and from really understanding the constitutional issues, which were sophisticated and complex, but also 
really a lesson in leadership and in putting together teams and really uh, having lots of different talented people working together and and, uh, joining together for a common purpose. So really quite extraordinary. Well, and, you know, one of my favorite movies about this time period is a movie called Recount. You can stream it on HBO. And what really, I think, appeals to me about the movie is it's not only about kind of the the legal arguments and the law surrounding it, but it was kind of the total political strategy that kind of went through both campaigns, the Democratic campaign as well as the Republican campaign. Would love to hear kind of your thoughts on kind of, you mentioned leadership. I assume you there was both legal and political leadership that kind of went into kind of uh, the arguments that went before the court. That's absolutely the case. And I will tell you, I don't actually watch any of those kinds of movies. Um, I uh, will tell you that normally I'm looking uh, for more, uh, you know, uh, I I often feel like that's what I do for work. So that's not what I do when I go watch a movie. <laughs> um, so I haven't seen that one, but I'll, I'll take the time to stream it now that you've recommended it. But if you'll allow me not to do it in the month of November, please. Um, but uh, what I will say about it is it's such an important reminder in both election and political law, which is one part of my life, but also the other part of my life where I represent Fortune 100 companies in litigation, right? One of the things we always talk about as litigators uh, for businesses is to make sure we understand the business needs, right? That's always part of the analysis. I'm sure at your firm, you know, you want to understand the construction, you want to understand what the goals of the project are, et cetera. And that has to always play into the legal issues. They never arise just in a vacuum, but they're always, right? There's always the interplay with the business needs. Well, when it's election or political law, it's the business of politics, right? That's the piece that has to be considered all the time. And so there are always considerations beyond just the legal. And it's our job as lawyers to really take into consideration all the various things that are important for our client to help move the ball forward. Sure. And then sort of coming out of, I think, that Supreme Court case and the the recount procedurally that, that occurred in Bush v. Gore, it seems that now part of a campaign strategy is planning for litigation planning for a recount. And I noticed in your bio that you served on President Biden's 2020 uh, recount team. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, you don't have to get into kind of nitty gritty strategy, but, you know, presumably, you know, now all of these presidential campaigns have these legal teams that are ready to strike if something, you know, goes awry. Well, and if I can, Dave, I'll go back to 2000 on that. Really from 2000 on, many, many candidates began having lawyers committees. So I remember serving on the lawyers committee for Mayor Shirley Franklin back again when I was a young lawyer. You know, campaigns began um, understanding that they really had to have that legal support in place prior to election day. And now, of course, we're in a world where so many things come up prior to election day. The, the, yes, of course, the legal team has to be ready. And given you know everything that happened in Georgia in 2020 after that election and, and given the issues around the recount, absolutely, that team had to be stood up and ready to go. What just continues to be remarkable is how reminiscent the arguments are from 2000, even as we stand here in 2022. 
Well, let me ask you this. You know, you mentioned a couple of times that you were involved in these issues as a young lawyer. And I know a lot of our listeners are young lawyers and law students, very interested in politics on both sides of the aisle, but they may not know or have an in into that that world. What recommendations or strategies um, might you give um, if you were talking to a young lawyer who wanted wants to get into politics or, or assisting a political campaign on the legal side or even on the political side? How, 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 how would you get started? Well, I think, first of all, as you can probably guess, I'm a huge advocate for becoming involved in your community and particularly in the in the civics of your community. So I would first really advise a young lawyer to make sure they're paying attention to elections, right? If we as lawyers are not the ones who are really embracing and participating in our democracy at the highest levels, how can we expect others to? We, of course, have sworn to uphold the Constitution. So we have that opportunity to interact, whether it's helping volunteer with a campaign in a way that is legal, right, by joining a lawyer's committee or otherwise being involved uh, with vote voter protection, for example, working a lawyer's hotline, that sort of thing, or just picking a candidate and getting interested in the issues, right? Helping with policy, helping with all of the things that lawyers are good at, problem solving, creative thinking, organizing, right? Doing the things that lawyers um, can do to really understand, yes, the politics, but also the legal issues. And the one thing about campaigns is they have space for an endless number of, of volunteers. So I would encourage any young lawyer who's interested in this area to pick a candidate, find someone they really believe in, find some causes they really support, and then get engaged. And by the way, it's really easy, I think, to get involved in terms of local races. If you, like you said, pick a candidate, go on a candidate's website for a candidate that you believe in, and um, they're always looking for, for volunteers, right? Especially lawyers. Absolutely. I mean, I remember when I was in law school up in Connecticut, I um, had gotten to a in my third year, I got to a point where I had, you know, a little more free time than you do the first two years. You may remember that, Dave. Sure. And I just showed up at a local office for someone who's running for congressman and said, do you need anything? And of course they did. <laughs> right. They were delighted to have a third year law student who had some extra hours. Now, I did I had to do some research to make sure I was going to the office of someone who I could support, whose whose philosophies were similar to mine, whose values were in line with mine. But they were delighted. Now, I'm not going to tell you I was doing anything glamorous. Right. I showed up on the days that I could and they gave me jobs. And those were not necessarily um, the most exciting jobs or the jobs that required you know, all of my um, legal skills, but they had me in the room. They had me meeting people and understanding more about the process. And then they had me doing the thing that, you know, is still one of my favorite things to do, which is talking to voters. Knocking on doors, right? Making phone calls. Absolutely. That's exactly right. And then speaking of picking a candidate, I know in 2018, I've read, at least from your bios that I've seen, that you worked very closely on the Stacey Abrams uh, campaign for governor of Georgia. Um, you were the campaign chairman, correct? That's correct. Chairwoman. Chairperson. Chair, of course. Sorry about that. Um, well, tell us a little bit about sort of what your role was, how you you know got that got to that position. Absolutely. So I served, yes, as the campaign chair, we say, in 2018. I had actually um, worked on uh, many of Leader Abrams' campaigns prior to that. 
we um, had been young lawyers together at Sutherland, Asheville, and Brennan as you know, baby lawyers right out of law school. And when she decided she first wanted to run for the house, I helped her. And as she continued to develop her political career, I continued to develop on the side of supporting and growing in politics to really support her as a candidate because I believed in her. I believed in um, what she stood for. And as I said earlier, it's important to find candidates who share your values. And she absolutely shared my values. And so it was very exciting for me to become involved in that way. And so as her campaigns got bigger and, and more complex, um, I had the opportunity to grow along with those campaigns. And uh, Ms. Abrams has some uh, a, a very good book that I read. I think it was an audio book, but it's called Minority Leader, How to Lead from the Outside and Make Real Change. Really great book, especially for young folks kind of looking to, to make their mark in politics and in life. What drew you to her campaign. I mean, she's a pretty powerful you know, speaker and leader, but what in particular drew you to her campaign? Fundamentally, her values, what she wants to do for the state of Georgia. And so it is very exciting for me as the mother of girls to have a candidate who believes the things that she believes, right? Who's really focused on housing, on education, on healthcare, on ensuring that Georgia citizens have the ability to make a good living and have a good life. And so it's just incredibly exciting to be a part of that campaign. And in particular, I uh, was in law school thinking that I would myself become a politician. Many of us, I think, um, think about that in law school. It wasn't until some years after that I realized the huge sacrifice that politicians have to make to live in the public, to um, do everything that they do. I really fundamentally believe that when good people are willing to run, then those of us who are not putting ourselves up for that type of public service should be looking for opportunities to support. So I should say, I am, of course, chair of the Abrams campaign. I also serve as chair for several other candidates or um, sitting judges as well. I've been involved in many, many other campaigns as well, because when I find candidates who are really good, I try to make sure I support them. And many of them then ask me to take a leadership role in their campaigns. Yeah. And I, I can tell you from personal experience, running for election is hard. Um, I ran and won a, a very local kind of township race uh, a few years ago, still serving um, in that office currently. And it's it's a pretty hard thing to do to uh, take time away from your family and, and, and you know, go on, go around, knock on doors, go to candidate forums and the like. And yeah, it's very important, no matter what side of the aisle that you're on, um, that you support these people because they're taking a risk and taking, um, uh, making the sacrifice um, to serve. Um, and it's very important to support those folks. I agree. And thank you very much for your service. I really do believe it's hard and it's, it's hard to just get elected now, right? It's so expensive to get elected, to really have the uh, resources needed to get the message out. And no one likes calling people to ask for money. Right? Nobody enjoys that. I've yet to meet that candidate. Um, Dave, I assume you didn't enjoy your call time. Um, no. <laughs> uh, right? Um, everyone likes to talk to people. No one wants to ask for money. There's just so much that has to be done. And as you say, going to events, and I'm sure when you were up for election, you had events every single night. Yep. Right. There many a night when your family didn't see you at all. It's really hard. And so seeing that being close to it has just made me that much more committed to really supporting good candidates. 
Yeah. And so let's kind of transfer a little bit into getting into the nuts and bolts of kind of election law matters. I know there were some election law issues that came out of the 2018 campaign. Can you talk a little bit about um, some of those issues that came up? Absolutely. So starting really the third week of the early vote period, it's when we really began to witness in 2018 a broken election system in Georgia. There were hints of it prior to that, but no one really understood it until that Thursday and Friday of the third week of early vote when the system just became overwhelmed. And that's when we became really a national spectacle. That's probably, Dave, when you first noticed and saw on the news that Georgia had lines around the block. One of the things we know is that long lines serve as a poll tax. This is something that sometimes those of us who are in privileged positions like lawyers miss because we often have a lot of flexibility. Right. So we might be able to stand in line while we review a brief or do something else that continues um, to happen while we're standing in line. But what we know is that for many, many voters who are hourly workers who pay for their child care by the hour, who have to pay extra money for child care after hours, standing in long lines is impossible for them or it costs real money. When you have voters who show up and there's some problem with the voting rolls and they have to get sent to another site, that's fine if they can just jump in their car and drive 10 minutes away. But what if you don't have a car? Or what if you took the bus from across town from your job and then were told you're at the wrong location because there's some error that you had nothing to do with and now you've got to figure out how to get on public transportation to go to some other location. And by the way, you better get there before seven o'clock. And so these are the types of issues that we began to hear about by the thousands. And by the thousands, we, by the end of the process, by the time the votes were counted and by the time Leader Abrams had acknowledged that, that Brian Kemp would be the new governor, we had heard from 80,000 people. And so with the weight of that knowledge, we felt that there was something we had to do. And so we, we, we realized we were the people who had the most information, right? We had been hearing from the voters. And remember, I was, you know, I'm not a public official. So I was out in the world and I literally was in the grocery store with a line of voters who lined up, right, to tell me about their problems. I went to a holiday party at my church where people lined up. Everywhere I went, voters were coming to me to tell me about the problems that they had had. And so we took this information, we began to have people um, give their information via declarations, and we ended up filing a lawsuit back in 2018 at the end of the year. And um, we finally, post-COVID, got back in the courtroom after, you know, multiple attempts by the defendants to dismiss our case. We finally tried that case um, the spring and summer of 2022. And I understand this was the longest voting rights bench trial in the history of the Northern District of Georgia? Uh, certainly the longest one on record. Okay. So tell us tell us about what that what that looked like. I mean, it must have been a lot of witnesses. It was a lot of witnesses. It was an incredible trial. One of the things that was really remarkable about the case was that these incredible voters. So remember, these people are people who came to us for the most part in 2018. Yet these incredible voters hung with us, stayed with us, and were still with us when we went to trial post-COVID 
in 2022. So I just want to make sure that you understand that this case was brought not by Leader Abrams, right? Not about the results of the election. So sometimes people will ask me why this case is different than other cases, et cetera. And I think it's important that I know that we had over 539 organizations that we were representing in this church, in this case. And it was made up of largely the grassroots organizations that were representing and protecting voters during this time. Well, and I think that the, the, the judge, in his opinion, actually made a point of, of saying it was really remarkable that all these folks came in and testified. And he really appreciated the fact that they took the time and it took a lot of courage to testify during this trial. That's exactly right. And so the judge um, really appreciated these voters taking the time and, again, enduring yet another burden, yet another hardship to come in and make sure that their voices were heard. And for us, from the very beginning of this case, we made our priority centering the voices of the voters. It was always about the voters, always about the experiences that they had and what they were sharing with us, recognizing that they didn't have to keep persevering to try to vote, right? So some of the voters were people who didn't get to vote at all. Some were people who did get to vote. They just had to go through an awful lot to do so. We had a gentleman who continues to be purged erroneously from the rolls because his name, Andre Smith, is a name that shows up on felon lists. Now, he is not himself a felon, yet he has been purged twice uh, because this error occurs with the way that the list is maintained by the state. And so he has been purged twice. He may, of course, be purged again. We believe that he is at risk of a lifetime of voter suppression because he continues to have the same problem. So people like that, who, in addition to going through the trouble to try to stay on the rolls, to try to make sure they vote, also took the time to be with us in court. And so we're just incredibly grateful for them. So what else can you tell us about about this case? I mean, obviously, the the result was not what you, I think, expected or or wanted. But I think the court made a few recommendations uh, for changes to be made in the Secretary of State's office. I don't know if you want to talk about that or or kind of, you know, what you thought about. I mean, it was a very lengthy opinion that the judge issued. It was a very lengthy opinion. It was 288 pages. As I said, we represented uh, 589 plaintiffs, voting rights groups, churches, all sorts of people who had been involved in helping voters. Um, So 589 organizations who brought this suit. And what the court really did was to lay out the problems with the state of Georgia's electoral system. And the thing that I would say, of, of course, we were disappointed in the court's ruling and we wish the court had ordered the remedies that the plaintiffs requested. But it's really important to know what the court did do in the 288 pages. It doesn't take 288 pages to just throw out a case, right? That can be done very, very quickly by federal courts and and has been done many times over the years. Instead, the court here explicitly found that the Secretary of State's processes caused problems for voters. For example, the court found that the Secretary of State's felon matching criteria, and these are the criteria that cause eligible voters to be caught 
in the process of canceling registration records, the situation I just described to you, the court found that that felon matching process severely burdens voters and violates the First and Fourteenth Amendments of the Constitution. And what the court did there was to recommend that the Secretary of State eliminate the loose matching criteria used to identify voter records for cancellation. So let me talk about that for just a moment. Sure. Two pieces of that. First of all, the court focused on the loose matching criteria. Now, you, your listeners may have heard of exact match. Right. So exact match is what the secretary of state's office uses in Georgia when they're checking. When somebody goes and shows up at the polls, they want to make sure that the ID matches exactly. That's not loose match. Right. That's exact match. And we've all heard the stories of people who have a letter off or a misspelling or a space or an apostrophe that ends up making it difficult for them to vote. They may have a hyphen like I do in my last name, and that ends up causing trouble. However, with the felon matching process where the state is removing people from the rolls, flagging voters for removal, they use a loose matching criteria. People aren't really aware of that. And in fact, without this litigation, we would not have been aware of it. Right. We didn't know it. It's not a policy that is uh, advertised at all, but we were able to determine it through the litigation. The court also called attention to the secretary's choice to use race as a criterion for matching voter records to the list of persons convicted of a felony when the secretary does not rely on race to match records in any other list maintenance process. So I note here that the court gave a recommendation, not a remedy. And we, of course, would have preferred a remedy. Why did the court do that? Well, one of the things that the court made extremely clear as it laid out its 288-page order is the way in which the landscape has changed under the current Supreme Court jurisprudence. So what was different in 2018 when we filed and in 2022 when we went to trial is the Bronovich case, which of course came out in the summer of 2021. And that greatly heightened the standard of proof for Section 2 cases under the Voting Rights Act. And so what the judge did in the 288 pages was lay out what the old standards were and really looked at all the ways in which we had provided evidence and proved the elements under the pre-Bronovich case law. And then the court looked at post-Bronovich and where the court was and basically found that his hands were tied. So this is a state of voting rights in America, right? I think we are starting to just now see the impact of Bronovich in the cases around the country. You see it here. There are some other cases. Obviously, the Supreme Court recently just heard oral arguments on the Voting Rights Act, um, what is left of it. So we will see until we get federal legislation to secure voting rights, what continues to happen in these individual cases in the district courts around the country. So part of being a litigator is you win cases and you lose cases. Not many people, I don't think, have 100% you know, victory records as litigators. Um, and so part of what we have to deal with as litigators is a loss. So tell us how you deal with a loss like that in court, something that you know affects everybody, you know, 
Every every voter in the state of Georgia is affected by uh, that case, and uh, it didn't go your way. So how how are you? How how did you deal with it? How are you dealing with it now? Well, Dave, the first thing I will say to you is that for us, the most important thing is to be on the right side of history, and we believe we absolutely are. We truly value the opportunity to stand up for the voters and to center their voices. So we see that as extraordinarily important. And we see the various benefits that came from this case as very important. So we continue to focus on those things. So we, for example, note that 22,000 voters were returned to the polls just because of our lawsuit, right? That's one of the many wins in our case. You know, one of the things the court starts off doing, you, you, I know I've seen the order, the court starts by saying there were wins and losses by both sides. We have been really glad along the way to note where there have been significant improvements to the election system, we believe, because of our lawsuit. So, as I said, the state restored 22,000 voters to the rolls who were wrongly selected to be purged from the list of registered voters. I, I remember receiving the call as we were literally getting in the car headed to the courthouse um, where uh, the state, because we had made the argument and put the evidence on, the state restored those 22,000 voters. Remember, Joe Biden won Georgia by far less than 22,000 voters. So we were very, very excited to see that. The state also conducted an audit to identify thousands of Georgians wrongly excluded from the active voter list based on incorrect citizenship information. The state thankfully purchased new voting machines, which really needed to happen in Georgia. And the state also began to update their training materials. We have a whole section of our lawsuit about training materials that had incorrect information in them. Something as simple as that to ensure that correct information was delivered to poll workers so that they could give good information to our voters. So we really believe that that was incredibly important. We also, again, we think no one should celebrate this order, right? 288 pages of an order where the court really lays out an election system that continues to impact voters in a negative way, especially voters of color who have been historically marginalized in our system. And so where the court has acknowledged all of that and really detailed in the order the ways in which those voters have been burdened. We don't believe that's a cause for celebration for either side, but we do believe it is true motivation to continue our work. We know that all of the 589 groups that we represent are committed to protecting voters. We are in week two of early voting here in Georgia, and we've already started to hear of many, many problems. But we also are having historic turnout in Georgia this year, really presidential level voting. And again, we credit these grassroots organizations, the same organizations in many cases that were part of our lawsuit and all the work that they're doing to really empower and engage voters to get them out despite the obstacles. So the fight for voter protection and election integrity definitely continues. Um, unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our time together. I wondered if you could give us a couple of tips as we end the show about how we can continue that fight either as young lawyers or as more experienced members of the bar. I would start by saying we are in a unique 
spot in history where truly our democracy is threatened. The most important things we can do with our law degrees to really protect our country. And all of us can be a part of it. Right? All of us can uh, do our part to help protect voters, to help empower voters, to help engage voters. And, you know, lawyers really have become first responders in this country. They continue to inspire me. We have so many wonderful, wonderful members of the bar, so many incredible members of the ABA. Like you, I make my home in the section of litigation, and I am constantly inspired and motivated by the work. And so I hope that we will all um, stay really focused. We have all upheld, uh, all sworn a promise to uphold the Constitution. You know, this is not a partisan issue. It's just an issue for every one of us. And as we really prepare uh, the world for our children, I know that we have everything that we need to protect uh, democracy. Well, Allegra Lawrence Hardy, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for your powerful work. Thanks for uh, being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. And now it's time for our quick tip from the ABA litigation section. So let's welcome back Daryl Wilson to the show. Daryl is Assistant General Counsel in the Litigation Center of Excellence at Honeywell International Incorporated. It's great to see you again, Daryl. Hey, Dave. Great to be back here again. Well, I understand you're going to be talking with us about indemnification agreements today. Yes, absolutely. So starting things off, I want to show that, you know, in some cases you may find that your client has entered into some form of an indemnification uh, agreement with another party. And these are known as contracts that protect one party of a transaction from the risk or liabilities created by the other party of a transaction. These can also be known as hold harmless agreements, no fault agreements, a release of liability or a waiver of liability. And the purpose of these agreements uh, is to compensate the other party for certain costs and expenses that may occur in some third party litigation. So for me, I would say the tips that I have for litigators is that when you're representing a client in any type of third party claim, you should always look to see if there is some form of an indemnification uh, agreement or some indemnification opportunity that may arise by virtue of agreements of the parties that may be contracted uh, or contractually bound to one another. Uh, to do so, you must thoroughly review any contract or agreement that your client has entered into with another entity that may be liable. Uh, uh, and so when you look at indemnification, the idea is that if your client has entered into some form, it may be through a merger or acquisition or, or some type of agreement where they may have bought out another company and the liabilities or risk may still be assessed to the former owner of the company. Um, or in some instances, you may have bought out the risk and liabilities of an organization. And so when you look to see when the lawsuit is filed, you may have a party that may look and say, OK, you have purchased my company or I purchased your company and there's some form of an agreement that you must indemnify me for this liability that I have incurred or that in a suit that I have been named in. And so when you do that, you want to look to make sure that um, the indemnification agreement, whether or not one, it is an indemnification only agreement where you must indemnify based off of the risk or it's if there's a duty to indemnify and to also defend an organization when they been named in a lawsuit. In that instance, you may have uh, opportunity to, one, select your own counsel if there's a duty to defend 
or if there is an agreement among the parties that you may end up having to utilize the counsel of choice of the other party. These are things that are very, uh, I guess, kind of interesting to me, but also key that when you read that agreement, that one, when you're kind of negotiating your agreements, that you focus on whether or not you are maybe held liable for some risks or liabilities of the organization that you may be purchasing or entering into an agreement with, and also whether or not you have your choice of counsel when you're dealing with those claims. Another thing that if you have entered into an indemnification agreement with a party, you want to look to see what forms of notice you have to give. You know, when a lawsuit is filed and you receive that uh, service of process and you want to put the other party on notice, you you may have some temporal uh, obligations where it says that, you know, once you have received service that you must know the party within 30, 60 or 90 days. You want to ensure that you know when your time may lapse in notifying another party of their indemnification obligation uh, so that you don't miss that or so that it's not waived when you receive service of process. Um, Another thing that you want to look at to make sure that you are perfecting the notice of the indemnification is also you understanding how you have to provide notice. In some instances, you may have to provide notice by mailing a copy of the complaint to the party. So you want to know who you have to provide notice. I've seen in some contracts where you have to provide notice to an in-house counsel or president of an organization, but also providing notice to their selected outside counsel as well. So you want to make sure that you are perfecting your notice because that could potentially come back to hurt you or bite you if you do not perfect your notice in such a way that is uh, determined and outlined by the contract or the agreement that you've entered into. So in terms for indemnification, my quick tips today is just really one understand if there is an indemnification obligation through an agreement Two. Determine whether or not there is a time frame in which you have to provide notice of this indemnification. Three, determine if it is an indemnification only or if it is an indemnification and defense agreement. And then lastly, look to the opportunity to see how you have to provide notice to ensure that you perfect your notice upon the individual so that you can have those proper rights provided to you in terms of your indemnification agreements and tendering the demand or notice over to a party to indemnify and defend your interests. Thanks, Dave. Well, great, Daryl. Thanks for bringing your practical tips to the table today. Really appreciate being on the show. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. And that's all we have for our show today. I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's episode. If you have comments or a question you'd like me to answer on an upcoming show, you can email me at dscrivenyoung without the hyphen at gmail.com and connect with me on social. I'm at AttorneyDSY on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also connect with the ABA litigation section on those platforms as well. But as much as I'd like to connect with you online, nothing beats meeting in person at our next litigation section event. So please make plans to join us at the Corporate Council CLE Seminar in Orlando, Florida, February 16th through the 18th. The seminar brings together in-house and outside counsel to learn, network, and share expertise about the unique challenges they face in representing corporations of all types. It's designed by and for general counsel and their outside law firm. So please join us. To find out more and for registration information, go to ambar.com slash corporate counsel. If you like the show, please help spread the word by sharing a link to this episode with a friend or through a post on social and invite others to join the show and community. 
If you want to leave a review over at Apple Podcasts, it's incredibly helpful. Even a quick rating over at Spotify Podcasts is super helpful as well. And finally, I want to quickly thank some folks who make this show possible. Thanks to Michelle Oberts, who's on staff with the litigation section for her help, as well as our fabulous producer, Rich Rivera. Thanks, Rich, for all of your hard work. Thanks also goes out to my fellow co-chairs of the litigation section's audio contact committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True. Thank you to Lawrence Coletti and the audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.